Hello and welcome to the Old Time Radio Forever broadcast. I'm your host, Matt Perry. Join us weekly as we explore the golden era of American radio through the dramas, westerns, mysteries, and comedies that shaped the golden age. Be sure to give us a thumbs up or a five-star review on all of the podcast directories that you may use. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Old Time Radio Forever. Our first show this week is a true cultural phenomenon. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Since the original publishings in the late 1800s, Sherlock Holmes has never left us. From his silver screen and radio programs to television programs that still run today starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Sherlock Holmes has been a part of our lives for over a century. In this week's episode, we go to the John Stanley years from 1948, The Ancient Queen on Old Time Radio Forever. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft clothes for men and more than 1,200 leading retail stores from coast to coast Presenter Arthur Conan Doyle's immortal character, the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley. <laughs> this week's story, The Adventure of the Ancient Queen. What is it, Watson? Look through the window here. Someone's just dashed out of a cab. He's running into this building. Indeed, Watson. A late hour for anyone to be about. Well, seems to be coming up to our room. Good Lord, Holmes, did you hear that? Yes, Watson. It seems that our nocturnal visitor has been suddenly detained. We're at the door of Dr. John Watson's study, and we're about to hear another of his adventures with the fabulous Sherlock Holmes. Well, good evening, Mr. Harris. Oh, good evening, Dr. Watson. What memoir are you working on tonight? I call it The Adventure of the Ancient Queen. And a rather weird and bizarre case it was, too. One of Holmes's prime favorites, I might add, with an origin over 3,000 years old. 3,000 years old? Exactly, Mr. Harris. Well, Dr. Watson, who was this, this ancient queen? All in good time, Mr. Harris. I shall reveal that a little later. But now it would seem is the appropriate time for a word about those excellent Clippercroft clothes. And so it is, Doctor. If you've been wearing high-priced clothes, you may wonder how your Clippercraft dealer can afford to give you one of the finest suits you've ever seen for only 40 or $45. Well, it could happen only in America. And here's the answer. The friendly independent store in your community that sells Clippercraft clothes is one of the more than 1,200 fine stores throughout the nation who concentrate their huge purchasing power just to bring you big money suits at exceptionally low prices. The savings on fabric purchases alone are tremendous. Naturally, production and distribution costs are lowered, and enormous economies are affected by Clippercraft's operation of their great tailoring plants on a full-time schedule all year round. And there you have it. The honest reason behind Clippercraft's amazing value. That's why you can own a handsome Clippercraft suit of luxurious worsted at only $45. And why millions are so delighted with Clippercraft's incredibly low prices for fine top coats and overcoats. 
Yes, compare Clippercraft with clothes selling for many dollars more. And now, Dr. Watson, what about this adventure of the ancient queen? Well, Mr. Harris, as I recall, it took place in the spring of 1896. And properly speaking, it began not on our own green island, but on the sun-baked sandy waste of lower Egypt. It was in this area that Sir Edward Norcross, the eminent British archaeologist, had long sought the ancient mysteries of the pharaoh. Then one day, near a place called El Ayat on the lower Nile, he broke into a hidden underground tomb, crisscrossed with dark and dust-choked passageways, brooding with the silence of centuries. And then Sir Edward and his assistant Smythe left the rest of the excavation party and pushed forward into the most remote section of the subterranean tomb. <coughs> it's just, Sir Edward, it's almost impossible to breathe. Yes, my... <coughs> the accumulation of some 3,000 undisturbed years. <coughs> I don't like it, sir. We've, we've never gone this deep before. I don't know. I've got a feeling we are not alone here. Oh, rubbish. No living person has entered this tomb for centuries. Perhaps up ahead we may... Smythe. Yes, sir? Hold that lantern higher. I think I see... Smythe. Smythe, we found it. Good Lord. Come on, let's have a closer look. Look, Smythe. The hieroglyphics. The reliefs on the walls, the lotus bud columns, the green stone beetle, the sacred hawks of Horus, royalty, 19th dynasty in the period of Ramesses the Pharaoh. And here, here's a stone mummy case, a sarcophagus. Oh, George, sir, it must be. Yes. Come, Smite, help me. Let's force open this stone coffin cover. Yes, sir. I'll get under it with the crowbar, sir. It's opening, sir. Spy. Look. Good Lord, sir. It's, it's a queen. Yes, Spy. The queen of the Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses II. I've been looking for her for years. Years. And now I've found her. We'll take her back to London, put her on exhibit in the British Museum. But will His Excellency Ahmed Bey allow this, Sir Edward? Ahmed Bey is merely the Khedive's agent for archaeological matters. I have a directive from the Crown, from Buckingham Palace itself. Oh, look at her, Smythe, lying there in the mummy case. Looks almost alive, doesn't she? Yes, Sir Edward. It almost seems like a sacrilege to disturb her. Beware, vandal. Sir Edward, what was that? A voice. A voice from somewhere in the tomb. Beware, heathen disturbers of the dead. Violators of the tomb. Let the dead sleep. Sir Edward. Listen. Beware, desecrators. Take thy vile gaze from the Queen of Ramesses. Go. Leave this tomb and never return. Remove the noble one from her sacred sleep, and ye too shall sleep the sleep of death. Hearken to me, or ye shall die. So you in 
intend to take the mummy of the Queen of Ramesses back to London, Sir Edward? Yes, Your Excellency. I plan to bring her directly to the British Museum. As Foreign Minister for His Royal Highness the Katie, I do not advise it. Well, what do you mean? You told me about the voice in the tomb, Sir Edward. You have been warned. Yes, yes, Your Excellency. I know the legend. It's supposed to be a fanatical Egyptian sect called the Society of the Sun, devoted to the protection of the sacred spirits of the royal dead. You are well informed, Sir Edward. Of course, it's all rot. Pure rubbish. I heard a voice, yes, but I'm sure it came from one of the Egyptians in my party, somewhere in the tunnel. Probably tried to frighten us away so that he could rob the mummy case of its priceless relics at will. You still insist on transporting the mummy to the British Museum? I do. Very well. You have royal authority and I cannot refuse you. However, there are a few details I must insist upon. Yes? The mummy case must remain sealed and placed under heavy guard for the entire voyage. And I myself will go along to see that this priceless treasure of Egypt arrives safely at its destination. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, now you have the background of the story from His Excellency here, Ahmed Bay and myself. We came directly to your quarters here at Baker Street as soon as we saw the sarcophagus safely delivered to the museum. I see. We felt that this was a matter far beyond the province of the official police. Sir Edward here insisted that you were the only man in the empire capable of coping with this problem, Mr. Holmes. In that assumption, Your Excellency, Sir Edward is entirely correct. And I must say that I find your account of the incident in the tomb quite fascinating. Sir Edward, do you think this fanatical cult may strike soon? It has already struck, Dr. Watson. What? Do I understand you to say, Sir Edward, that the society has taken its first victim? Yes, Mr. Holmes, yes. My assistant, Smythe. He vanished on the ship on our third day out. We never saw him again. The deuce was there. Interesting, Sir Edward. Very. Your Excellency. Yes, Mr. Holmes? What is your opinion of this secret cult devoted to the protection of Egypt's ancient tombs? Mr. Holmes, I am what you call modern. I was educated at Oxford, and I know the views of the Western world on these legends. I am not a superstitious man myself. But I have a feeling that this cult does exist. Then you think it is dangerous, must be taken seriously. Yes, Dr. Watson. I have repeatedly suggested to Sir Edward here that the only safe course is to restore the mummy of the Ramesses Queen back to its original resting place and seal the tomb. Send the Queen of Ramesses back to Egypt? No, Your Excellency. This is the greatest discovery of my career. As you wish, Sir Edward. I must warn you, however, that I, as well as you, are in acute danger of death. After all, I have been an accessory to spiriting the mummy out of Egypt, and if these assassins decide to pay a visit to my suite at the Savoy, I... Holmes, what the deuce is The there? window pane, Watson, has just been smashed. There's the one through an object through it. Quick, Watson, to the window. Yeah. See anyone on the street below? No, Holmes. I thought I saw a shadow turn the corner, but I, I, I couldn't be sure. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, here's the object that broke your window. It's the scarab. Yes. A green stone beetle. And there's a note attached to one of the claws. Allow me to examine the notes, Your Excellency. Hmm. Dash it, Holmes, don't just stand there. What the devil does it say? Beware, Sir Edward. You have been warned. Your time will come and soon. For he who despoils the tomb of the pharaohs, he who violates their eternal rest, dies. <laughs> 
in. Oh, good evening, Hobbs. Uh, good evening, Dr. Forsythe. Uh, let me see. You're on duty as guard here at the museum tonight, are you not? Yes, sir. Hobbs, as director of the British Museum, I must emphasize the fact that you have a special responsibility tonight. Uh, yes, sir. Sir Edward Norcross has just brought us a new sarcophagus from Egypt. It contains the ancient queen of Ramesses and is priceless, priceless. I want you to keep a special eye on it tonight. You follow me, Hobbs? All right, sir. I won't let it get out of my sight for long. Uh, very good, Hobbs. Uh, you'll find the mummy case just below the massive granite statue of Ramesses in the Egyptian central saloon between the galleries. Uh, good night, Hobbs. Uh, good night, Dr. Forsythe. I say, Holmes. Yes, Potton? Where the devil are we going? After Sir Edward Nam had left our rooms, you rushed me out in the street and I didn't... First, Watson, we're going to the home of my good friend, Dr. Eustace Forsythe, director of the British Museum. Indeed, why? It's past closing time at the museum, but I hope I can induce Dr. Forsythe to allow us a special showing of Her Ancient Majesty, the Queen of Ramesses. Oh, Holmes, surely you don't believe Watson, that? Watson, I'm prepared for anything at this point. We're dealing with a mystic here, with a, with a group of fanatics who will stop at nothing. I've instructed Sir Edward to bolt his doors and lock his windows, but I fear it may not be enough. What do you mean? Her... I mean that Sir Edward's in very grave danger. Unless I underestimate this strange society of the sun, other lives will be at stake before this night is done. Hello. Hello. Who's there? Who's there near that mummy case? Speak up. Could have sworn I saw someone lurking around that mummy case with a man he's queen. No. No. No! All entrances and doors to the museum are locked, Dr. Forsythe. Yes, Mr. Holmes, locked and bolted. Everything but the main entrance, which I just unlocked with my own key. And the museum guard is watching that mummy case. Uh, yes, a man named Hobbs. <laughs> Not the kind of job I'd want, I must say. Where did you start with at this moment? In the Assyrian transept, Watson. In the moment we shall pass through the North Gallery into the Egyptian Central Saloon. Mr. Holmes, I still don't understand the reason for this extraordinary visit to the museum tonight. Murder, Dr. Forsythe. Murder? Yes. And I only hope we're in time to... Ah! Holmes, good Lord, what was that? Follow me, both of you. Uh, here we are. At the Egyptian Central Saloon. Yeah, there's a juice of dark in here. Quick, Watson, the match. Yes, sir. Here you are, Holmes. Here's the massive granite statue of Ramesses II and the mummy case of the Queen at its feet. Holmes, good Lord! Just as I feared, Watson, we're too late. Why, Hobbs, Hobbs, the guard! He's covered with blood! Yes. Dead! Yes, struck in the head by a tremendous blow. I... Watson, look. Uh, oh, where? Up at the statue of Ramesses II. Note the clenched granite fist. Holmes, good heavens! The statue's fist is... It's smeared with blood! I don't understand it. I don't understand... Beware! What's that? What on earth is that? The so-called voice of Ramesses, apparently. Beware, heathen disturbers of the dead, violators of the tomb. Let the dead sleep. <laughs> 
Hearken unto me or ye shall die. Well, Dr. Watson, so far it's been some adventure. Why, the thrills and chills are chasing themselves up and down my spine. This one's in a class by itself, Doctor. Class by itself? Oh, oh, you mean the American idiom for distinctive? Yes, that, that's just what I do mean. And you've chosen just the word I need when it comes to clippercraft pose, Doctor. Distinctive. Right now at the friendly independent store in your community that sells clippercraft clothes, one of America's greatest and most distinctive clothing values is yours. And for the savings you'll pocket, you can thank the great clippercraft plan. In a typically American way, more than 1,200 of this country's finest independent stores from coast to coast, stores you can trust, have merged their buying power to reduce fabric, production, and distribution costs to an absolute minimum. Otherwise, it would be quite impossible for you to own top coats or overcoats as luxurious looking as Clippercrafts for only $40 to $47.50. Or the new lightweight zipper lining Clippercraft top coat that is sweeping the country at a price that will surprise you it's so low. That's why men who know insist on Clippercraft clothes. So be sure to visit the Clippercraft store in your city. These leading stores in the metropolitan area are proud to add their names to Clippercraft in your suits, top coats, and overcoats. In Manhattan, John Wanamaker Men's Stores, Broadway at 8th and 67 Liberty Street. Saks 34th, Broadway at 34th. In Brooklyn, Abraham and Strauss. In Newark, New Jersey, Boulevard Men's Shop, Kresge, Newark. And in Jamaica, the B&B Clothes Shop, 16408 Jamaica Avenue. And now, Dr. Watson, you were relating to us the adventure of the ancient queen. Yes, Mr. Harris, so I was. Holmes, Dr. Forsythe, and I stood there transfixed as that voice from the tomb echoed through the vast, eerie museum. It spoke, then it was still. Dr. Forsythe illuminated one of the gas chandeliers and as the flickering flame played over the massive statue with the blood-stained fist, we seemed to feel a living presence in the room. Mr. Holmes. Yes, Dr. Forsythe. That voice, that eerie voice, it seemed to come from the mausoleum room next to the Nineveh Gallery. Shouldn't we hurry off in pursuit, Holmes? No, Watson, we should be wasting our time. Yes, but I... The museum is a vast place, Watson, as you well know, consisting of whole series of special rooms. That echoing voice could have come from anywhere. Mr. Holmes! Holmes, someone's coming. Yes. I see a man coming in, Mr. Holmes. See him? Ah, yes. The entrance to the Nineveh Gallery. Mr. Holmes. Why, it's His Excellency, Ahmed Bey. Mr. Holmes, I came down to the museum to pay my respects to Dr. Forsythe here and make arrangements for the exhibition of the mummy case. I didn't realize the museum was closed. Then I saw you going to the front door, heard a scream, and then... Oh. I'm afraid we're all a little late, Your Excellency. Yes. I see that now. The Society of the Sun. They've struck again. The statue of Ramesses seems to have struck this time, Your Excellency. If you'll just look at the fist. Blood. Blood on the fist. The pharaoh striking in wrath. In revenge for the desecration of his queen. I cannot accept that observation, Your Excellency. Massive statues of red granite such as this one would find it very difficult to move. The killer smeared the fist with the blood of his victim to heighten the terror. Mr. Holmes, this is a terrible tragedy. Terrible. There must be some course we can take. Quite, Dr. Forsythe. We can begin where logic dictates. 
with a stone coffin and the mummy of Her Majesty the Queen. Watson, you take that end of the stone cover. I'll take this. It's quite heavy. You mean you're going to open the cover of the mummy case, Holmes? I am indeed. Mr. Holmes, it is dangerous. Quite, but entirely necessary and a risk we must take. Moreover, the mummy case has already been opened. You will note the seal is broken. By Jove, Mr. Holmes, it is. Precisely, Dr. Forsyth. Now then, Watson, lift her up. Well, gentlemen, there she is. The queen of the great pharaoh, Ramesses II, in a funeral shroud of bandages. Good heavens, Holmes. She looks lifelike. A secret lost with my ancestors, Dr. Watson. The art of human preservation for thousands of At years. One moment, Your Excellency. Yes, Mr. Holmes? A most unusual mummy, this. Look closely at that portion of bandage just over the heart. What about it, Holmes? It's apparently been ripped open for some reason and then re-sewn with modern thread. Mr. Holmes, you're right. I usually am, Dr. Forsyth. Moreover, there seems to be a cavity under that section of bandage. Note, as I press my finger upon it, it yields to the touch. I... Your Excellency. Yes, Mr. Holmes? I seem to recall reading somewhere that the Queen of Ramesses was given a rare and invisible gift by the sun god Ra. As one of the foremost Egyptologists in the world, have you ever heard of this legend? No. No, I have not. You are quite sure... I am positive, Mr. Holmes. Why do you ask? Merely an inherent curiosity, Your Excellency, or perhaps a positive thirst for facts. Come, Watson, we'll be off. Where to, Holmes? Baker Street, my dear Watson, Baker Street, to enjoy a quiet pipe and a bit of good reading. Holmes, how the devil can you sit in that chair and read some obscure and dusty volume while these fanatics... Patience, Watson, patience. I'm merely trying to resolve a point of scholarship. This obscure and dusty volume, as you've so irreverently called it, happens to be a rare edition of the Journal of Egyptian Mythology from the First Dynasty to the Middle Empire. I can't say I'm impressed, Holmes. Uh-huh. What is it, Holmes? I found it, Watson. I found it. You found what? I confess, Holmes, I'm entirely confused. Holmes, there's a coach drawing up to the car. Obviously, Watson, I can hear it quite plainly through the open window. There's a man coming into the building. I think it's Sir Edward Norcross. Sir Edward? Watson, I instructed him to stay in his rooms behind bolt and key. The man's in great danger. Uh, He's coming upstairs now. Holmes, good heavens! Quick, Watson, to the stairs. Holmes, it is Sir Edward. He's he's lying at the bottom of the stairs. He's dead. Quite with a crooked knife in his back and a note in his hand. Let's examine it, Watson. Holmes, what does it say? My dear Sir Edward, I have had the good fortune to obtain a strong lead on the Egyptian conspirators, but I require your immediate presence at Baker Street for the purpose of information. You may have no fear of leaving your quarters now. I assure you all at last is safe. Signed, Holmes. Aha, uh-huh. so that's how they lured Sir Edward from his rooms, Holmes. They forged your handwriting. Yes. Watson... I believe Ahmed Bey mentioned that he'd taken a suite at the Savoy. Yes, Holmes, he did. Then let's hurry off and see His Excellency at once, before it's too late. Your Excellency. Doesn't seem to be anyone in, Holmes. By Jove, Holmes, he's left his door unlocked, you know. Good Lord. Look at this room. Yes. A bit disorderly, isn't it, Watson? Disorderly? Been turned upside down. 
Lamps are smashed. The furniture is Obvious all... signs of a fierce struggle. Hello, what's this? What's what? It seems that His Excellency was preparing for a long journey after having only this evening arrived from one. Aha, uh-huh. Watson, look here on the table. Uh, seems to be a boat timetable of some kind. Precisely. Then for some reason he's returning to Egypt post-haste. On the contrary, my dear fellow, this happens to be the timetable of the liner Catania. And the Catania leaves Liverpool tomorrow at noon for America. For America? Holmes, dash it all, this doesn't make sense. It makes very good sense, Watson. The intentions and activities of His Excellency Ahmed Bey are crystal clear to me now. I... Uh-huh. What's this? There's only a towel thrown over the bed, huh? Use your eyes, man. Observe closely. You see this brown and sticky stain on the corner of this towel? Yes, Holmes. I see it now, but what is it? That stain happens to be resin. Resin? Quite. And it may interest you to know, Watson, that mummies in the 19th Egyptian dynasty were embalmed in a coat of resin before they were bandaged in order to preserve them. Oh, now what's the... I Jesus? should be very happy to resolve this entire adventure for you, Watson, or at least partially, on our way to the British Museum. It's there, I think, that we shall see the end of this blood-drenched affair. <laughs> You know, Holmes, at this moment, I'm completely baffled. I, I, I see no connection between these various events. Then you... let me enlighten you, Watson. First, His Excellency Ahmed Bey is a member of the Secret Society of the Sun. What? Now, let's reconstruct, Watson. Note that Ahmed Bey insisted on staying close to the mummy on its trip to England. Yes, yes, but I... It's reasonable to suppose, then, that Ahmed could have thrown Smythe overboard. But subsequent events made me sure of it. You remember we entered the museum with Dr. Forsythe through the main hall? Yes. Well, Ahmed Bey was there before us. He called to us from the Nineveh Gallery on the opposite side. Hence, we were between him and the only available entrance. By Joe Holmes, you're right. Quite. He assassinated the museum guard, Hobbs. Then his greed got the better of it. He knew the ruby of Ra was hidden in the mummy's heart under the bandages. The ruby of Ra? Yes, Watson. According to the legend of which His Excellency denied all knowledge... The sun god Ra had given the queen of Ramesses a huge ruby from his protective shield. It was placed in her heart to shield her from all harm. And Armand Bay dug it out and, and re-sewed the bandages. Exactly. I noticed a bit of thread on his trouser cuff when he approached us in the Egyptian central saloon. It was the same thread used to sew the mummy's bandages. Then that resin stain on the towel... Obvious, Watson. The ruby was covered with resin from the mummy. And later, Ahmed Bay tried to wipe the sticky residue off with the towel. He had planned to escape to America with the ruby and sell it for a fortune. Is it why are we going to the museum now, Holmes? Because, Watson, I have a feeling that we shall encounter the end of our adventure there. Come, Watson, let us again examine the occupant of this sarcophagus. Yes. Give me a hand with this stone cover, will you? Oh, right out. Holmes, good heavens, the mummy, the queen, it's gone. Quite. And in her place lies his excellency, armored bear, with a crooked knife in his back. Precisely, Watson. The revenge of the Society of the Sun. Armored Bay tried to betray his own colleagues in vain. Yes, but Holmes, I confess, I, I don't see how they can spirit a mummy out of the British Museum. They can, Watson, and they have. This, my dear fellow, is not only a sinister and deadly organization, but extremely resourceful. I have no doubt that even now they're taking the ancient queen back to Egypt, where she will again be entombed, away from prying foreign eyes, and with her, the great ruby of Ra. Holmes, what shall we do? Do? Nothing, my dear Watson. We've done what we can. To pursue this mummy further would lead only to 
further death and disaster. We are dealing in the realm of the mystic, almost the supernatural. To disturb the Queen of Ramesses is, after all, a kind of vandalism. And I, for one, am inclined to let the dead rest in peace. <laughs> Watson, that was certainly an unforgettable adventure. Indeed it was, Mr. Harris. And I might say here that as far as I know, the ancient queen of Ramesses has never been found. And Holmes and I always took the view that, well, may she rest in peace. Well, and now, Dr. Watson, what adventure will you have for us next week? Well, next week, Mr. Harris, I shall relate to you the adventure of a discordant bell. It concerns a creaking rope, a red smudge, a jangling refrain, and a human pigeon. The makers of Clipper Craft clothes and more than 1,200 stores from coast to coast have brought you another in the new series of broadcasts featuring the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. Our stories are based upon the character Sherlock Holmes, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And the program is produced and directed by Basil Lockhart. Sherlock Holmes is played by John Stanley. Dr. Watson by George Spelman. This week's story was written by Max Ehrlich, with special music by Albert Berman. Clippercraft, 200 Fifth Avenue, New York City. Be sure to listen next week to Sherlock Holmes in the adventure of the discordant bell. Cy Harris speaking for Clippercraft Clothes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Fly Eastern Airlines for double dependability. Dependable airliners, dependable personnel, and unbeatable combinations. Save 5% by round-trip tickets. To fly anywhere in the world, call Eastern Airlines or your travel agent. This is WOR New York. That was John Stanley starring as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's famous detective, Sherlock Holmes. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Sherlock Holmes. It's uh, rare that we uh, have a Sherlock Holmes episode on Old Time Radio Forever. Need to put that program in the rotation more definitely. I am open to all of your suggestions. If you would like to hear any programs running regularly on Old Time Radio Forever, please just drop us an email. The email address is oldtimeradioforever at gmail.com. Oldtimeradioforever at gmail.com. After this break, we will be going to the NBC Newsroom for a war news update from this week in 1942 on Old Time Radio Forever. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the early morning news of the world. And before we start our roundup of world capitals, here in the New York Newsroom, we have the latest reports on fighting in the Pacific Theater. 
Now, the first round of the battle for the Dutch East Indies may not be over yet, but so far the Allied nations are way ahead. Upwards of 30 Japanese ships so far have been sunk or damaged in the great running sea and air fight in Makassa Strait between Borneo and Celebes. American and Dutch forces between them are believed to have accounted for close to 25,000 Japanese soldiers gone down with their transport ships. The latest success is the torpedoing of a Japanese aircraft carrier announced by the Navy Department last night. The big ship is believed to have sunk after the attack by an American submarine. The Australian Air Force, employing the same tactics as the Americans and the Dutch, struck at the Japanese invasion fleet in the Bismarck Islands during the night, and a Melbourne communique says that three Jap ships were damaged in Rabaul Harbor. Now, Tokyo today claims the Japanese troops in Malaya are within 30 miles of Singapore, but there is no British confirmation for that. Remember, that's a Tokyo claim. Now, there's no indication yet of where the British line is now that uh, Batu Pahat has been lost, but on the west, at least, the front is less than 60 miles from Singapore. In Burma, according to a Rangoon communique, there's no change in the situation. And it isn't quite clear from that whether General Headquarters at Rangoon means that British troops still are withdrawing toward Mulmain or whether they've braced their lines. The American volunteer flyers in Burma have smashed another Japanese attempt to attack Rangoon from the air. In the latest clash, they shot down three and maybe four Japanese planes. The exact toll of Japanese losses in the Battle of Makassa is most difficult to compute because communiques from various sources overlap. But Washington has announced that American naval forces have accounted for at least eight and possibly ten Japanese transports. American flying fortress bombers sank another transport and set fire to one. And then there's the aircraft carrier, which makes at least 13 ships sunk, or probably sunk, by American forces. Now, the Dutch have blasted as many or more. Now, here's a late bulletin from Batavia. The Japanese are believed to have extended their landings in southwest Celebes. The Netherlands High Command says the invaders apparently have occupied their points in the Kendari region of that island. In the southern hemisphere, the Pan-American Conference at Rio de Janeiro closes today with every indication of being the most important in the history of interhemispheric relations. A final plenary session is scheduled to give formal approval to 39 resolutions designed to cleanse the entire hemisphere of Axis influences. Adoption of the resolutions is regarded as, well, just only a formality. But one century-old problem still threatens to sound a discordant note at the otherwise harmonious finale. It's the border dispute between Ecuador and Peru. Now, Ecuador may bring up the argument at the conference today, unless Peru previously accepts a formula for settling the controversy. In Montevideo, an authoritative source discloses that Uruguay's diplomatic delegations in Berlin and in Rome have closed their offices. Now, the staffs will leave soon for Lisbon, preparatory to sailing for home. Uruguay is one of the 17 American nations that have broken diplomatic relations with the Axis. The diplomatic break, in addition to an economic break, has been recommended by the conference. Uruguay also is supporting anti-Axis financial moves by requiring exchange permits on all remittances to foreign countries except Great Britain and the United States. 
The United States delegation to the conference regards the financial measure as, well, perhaps the strongest of the entire conference. The head of the American delegation, under Secretary of State Sumner Wells, says that he's eminently satisfied with the outcome of the conference. Broadcasting to the United States last night, Wells said the conference has more than accomplished its purpose, and said Wells, the unity of the Western Hemisphere has been preserved. From Moscow, the Red Armies are driving westward for further victories this morning. But Soviet communiques reveal no details except to say that a number of additional villages have been taken and that German losses are heavy. Word from unofficial sources is that Reserve, that's just 140 miles northwest of the Kremlin, is expected to fall any minute and that other Russian troops are pressing forward at uh, Veliki Luki, only 80 miles from the border of Soviet Latvia. The Soviet communique concludes with news of two more enemy transports sunk in the Barents Sea. Next comes news from that great democracy across the Atlantic. Go ahead, London. This is Robert St. John in London. Scrappy, round-faced Winston Churchill reported to his nation today. On the stroke of noon, the Prime Minister began a serious, hour-and-a-half fighting speech in Parliament. By his own wish... That speech started off a three-day debate on the whole conduct of the war. And also, by his own wish, the debate will be climaxed by a vote of whether or not Parliament wishes the Churchill government to continue in office. A vote of confidence or no confidence. There is no doubt here in London about what will happen when it's all over. When all the serious and petty complaints and criticisms have been aired. There is no doubt but that Parliament will tell the world it does have confidence in Winston Churchill. Churchill himself insisted on a really free debate and a really honest vote. He insisted on this demonstration of British democracy so that, as he put it, the whole world may know where we stand. He even urged his critics not to be mealy-mouthed in their speeches. Before actually reviewing the war, Churchill was several times a bit whimsical, tossing out occasional light banter, occasional jibes at his critics. Once, for example, he chided those who have lighter burdens to carry than some of the rest of us. Once, when he referred to the flight of Rudolf Hess to Britain, a member interrupted him to ask, Where is Hess now? Without an instant's hesitation, Churchill snapped back, Where he ought to be. A high point of the Churchill speech was his announcement that a joint Pacific Council has been established, a council on which Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and Holland will be represented, and that Australia, New Zealand, and Canada have been granted uh, representation in the war cabinet. Uh, he called on Britain not to allow itself to become rattled by events in the Far East. He refused to predict how long the Pacific War will last, but he frankly said it will be attended by heavy punishment. He doubted that the Japs will attempt an invasion of Australia. He pledged himself to do all in his power to aid Australia and to persuade America to do likewise. Churchill told dramatically how when he left Washington, Roosevelt gripped his hand tightly and said, we will fight this thing through to the bitter end, whatever the cost may be. Churchill referred to American troop landings in Northern Ireland and said a considerable force will follow. And he also gave Hitler something to think about when he said American fighters and bombers will defend this island and will attack Germany. 
As the Prime Minister got into a serious review of the war, I looked over at, at a tall, thin man in the balcony near me, and I noticed that he bent forward, cocking an ear and drinking in every word Churchill was saying. That man was American Ambassador John G. Wynett. A lot of other people were listening just as intently. Not a single seat on the floor of Parliament appeared to be vacant. They were there from all over, from Scotland, from Northern Ireland, from Wales, from all over England, there to hear Winston Churchill tell of his trip to America, his leadership uh, at uh, the Empire's most crucial hour, and his opinion of how the war is going. Often, Churchill was interrupted by little rumbles of approval, by shouts of, hear, hear. Churchill paid tribute to uh, uh, his and our Russian allies. He disclosed that Britain has sent Stalin exactly what Stalin asked for in the way of raw material. At the moment, there is only a slight lag due to the weather, but Churchill said this lag will be overcome next month. Then he turned to Libya. He told how when the winter battle began down there, the British had 45,000 troops against an Axis army twice that size. But, said Churchill, two-thirds of those men of Hitler and men of Mussolini have been killed, wounded, or captured. The British loss has only been 18,000. Churchill was grim when he told Parliament how this battle has tested our men. He said the desert fight has proved that men cannot only die for king and country, everyone knew that, but that they can also kill. He admitted that Rommel is a daring, skillful opponent. He admitted that a grave new battle now rages. But he said uh, he never hazards a prediction about the outcome of a battle while it still is in progress. And now this is Robert St. John returning you to New York. Now for a report on events here in the United States, as given by Earl Godwin from the newsroom in Washington. And good morning, folks. What I have to say comes right along behind Robert St. John because it's a part of the big effort. Your Uncle Sam and his pal John Bull get right down to cases now and pile up everything they have, all their resources, all of their ingenuity, all of their ships, all of their factories, all of their stuff, and promise to use it commonly in the common defense against this very common enemy. That's the meaning of the White House announcement, which was released this morning, about three joint war boards and so forth. The White House announced that the new boards will handle separate phases of a plan to knit still more closely the gigantic efforts of the United Nations. One of the new groups will control shipping. Another will control raw materials. And the third possibly the most important, will direct the disposition of munitions. All possible information between this country and England will be exchanged under the plan, and though only Britons and Americans will actually be board members, it is believed and said they will confer often with representatives of the other United Nations. It is expected these board members will be appointed shortly. I think that would give you a better picture if you just envisioned a, a common storeroom to which these boards will go to take the stuff that is needed here, there, and everywhere, everywhere, and just use them against the onslaught without resort to as much red tape and conferring as there has been. Meantime, Washington hears rather loud, short, and sharp, sharp cries from down under where the Australians and the Dutch are telling us, in effect, to hurry up and get busy or else. That seems to mean that the Aussies and the East Indian Dutch want the United States and Britain to help in a terrific and possibly a reckless offensive against the Japanese who are coming right down the line regardless. 
They are stopped for a brief time by successful naval engagements against them in the Straits, but no one believes the Japs will stop there. And incidentally, that remark of St. John's that the British government does not believe that the Japanese will invade or attempt to invade Australia is the first we have heard of it here because here in this country or in this, in this city, I haven't heard anybody uh, say that the Japanese would not invade Australia. In fact, we have thought they would if they could. The president signs that bill, by the way, to extend the retirement system, and that includes congressmen who must contribute a slice of their wages, same as everyone else. And the House finally agrees to what it looks to me to be a rather ragged version of the price control bill. The Senate may take it up and finish the thing today. Nobody, I haven't found anybody who gives the way this bill is written a 100% endorsement, but it provides a vast and severe price control authority, including authority to control rents in defense areas. And it gives the price administrator the power and authority to license you to do business. And if you don't conform to the government price regulations, out you go on your ear. But the price controller, of course, must get the court to do that. Also, you're permitted to go to court and sue anybody who overcharges you, and you may get three times the overcharge back. Sugar rationing this morning stands at about 12 ounces a week per person when they actually get down to rationing. The Dias Committee is in a mood to say, I told you so and will reveal to Congress all it had on the Japanese espionage organization on the West Coast, which Dye says he was urged to keep undercover while the executive branch of the government tried to smooth over the Japanese situation. That was more than, I think that was within the last two years. And a heavy concentration of Japanese merchants here were organized into a front for Japanese spy work, and Dye says that he has all the information and intends to put it into a booklet and lay it before Congress in about two weeks. That's all from Washington at this time. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the latest news of the world. Now, you've heard our reporter, Robert St. John, in London, Earl Godwin in Washington, and this is John Fraser speaking from New York. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the Blue Network. I was a communist for the FBI. Starring Dana Andrews and an exciting tale of danger and espionage, I was a communist for the FBI. Many of the incidents in the story you're about to hear are based on the actual records and authentic experiences of Matt Sivetic, who for nine fantastic years lived as a communist for the FBI. Here is our star, Dana Andrews, as Matt Sivetic. I was a part of the whole dirty mess. For nine years, I lied. For nine years, I cheated and betrayed my country in word and deed. For nine long years, I was everything that decent people hate. For nine years, I was a communist, working as an undercover man for the FBI. This story may help you understand why I felt my job was important to everyone in America. In a moment, listen to Dana Andrews as Matt Sabetic, undercover man. 
as Matt Savetic, Undercover Man. This story from the confidential file is marked, Draw the Red Curtain. is what I think of your editing. Very well, Vladimir. I'll report your change of heart to party headquarters and ask for a new assignment. No, no. Wait, comrade. Why? I am sorry. I I will put in the new dialogue. I do not want to disturb our comrades with such a petty quarrel. I was sure you wouldn't. But if only you weren't such an aesthetic nincompoop. <laughs> The party had me on an assignment that should have been easy. A soft job, with my only work consisting of editing a play to make sure it followed the party line. The job was a snap, with the one exception of the playwright, comrade Vladimir Mashinko. Vladimir had a public, and to them he was a white Russian artiste. But I wasn't a part of his public. To me, he was strictly temperament, with a capital temper. Please, comrade, don't look over my shoulder. Just checking the new lines. Go away. You better be careful of the cop's speeches. It sounds a little like deviationism. Comrade, go away. You know I can't stand to have you look over my shoulder. Excuse me. It is a pleasure. Hello? Comrade Savetic? Yes? Comrade Norris speaking. Report to me immediately. <laughs> And that's the way the job lost any softness it might have had. And trouble was mine without the asking. By now, I had almost gotten so that I was used to having trouble as a daily companion, but I never liked it. I left Vladimir attacking his typewriter like it was one of his hated capitalists while I went down to party headquarters, located in a forbidding gray stone building that was, ironically, squatting between two symbols of everything communism was against, a church and a bank. Inside, Comrade Norris, the local MVD chief, greeted me with all the warmth of a bowl of ice cubes. Sit down, Comrade. Thank you, Comrade. How is your work coming? Oh, it's fine. Vladimir... Keep it that way. I'll try, Comrade. But that work is now secondary. What? But I we are to... going to take over the local dramatic arts skill. This will local be... local dramatic arts skill, but I... I you interrupt, to... Comrade. I'm sorry, but the how... The exact got... method you will learn from Evelyn Vickers Hall... Is she in town? Yes. You recognize her name, I see. Naturally. She's one of our best organizers. She's been brought in as a wardrobe mistress at the theater where Vladimir's play is to be put on. How did you get that job? And that's that's been... no business of yours, comrade. Sorry. As you know, Vladimir belongs to the Dramatic Arts Guild. You must get him to vouch for you so you can join, too. That won't be any problem. Once in the guild, you are to report to Comrade Hall for instructions. Clear? Clear. <laughs> It was too clear, all except the technique to be used. I knew the local dramatic arts skill had a membership of over 2,000, including people in all phases of the theater, from prop boys to set designers and stagehands to producers. I was plenty curious just how a handful of reds were going to take it over. Curious but not disbelieving, I'd seen too many of their operations to underrate the threat of this one. 
As soon as I was away from Comrade Norris and party headquarters, I made my report to the FBI from a drugstore payphone. Hello? This is the man with the red hat. We're in the market. Go ahead, Matt. Evelyn Vickers Hall is coming to town. Going to try and organize a takeover of the Dramatic Arts Guild. When? Right away. I got instructions to work with her. The commies aren't missing a bet in getting their message to the public. Go ahead with it, Matt. Send us a list of the reds you find in the guild. Then try to break up the deal without exposing yourself. <laughs> That's quite an order. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Comrade, you are looking over my shoulder again. Nice dialogue. I don't like it when you... Huh? Oh, it's good, huh? It's great. Can you get me into the Dramatic Arts Guild? What? But why, comrade? You'll learn soon enough. Can you do it? Of course. When? Tomorrow. But in what occupation are you? The Guild takes in all of the theater. What's the difference? Make it I'm a writer. Okay. Well, thanks. I... Uh Uh-oh. Here comes Angel Child. Not of you, my own beloved. Oh, my beautiful Angel Child. Did you miss your Vladimir? Oh, yes, yes. I adore you, my strong, my brilliant, my magnificent. <laughs> you see, Comrade Svetik, Sally knows me. She loves me. Yeah. Sally, be a darling. Put the kettle on. Of huh? course. Will you help me, Comrade Matt? He'd be glad to. But I... Uh... Go ahead. I won't miss you. <laughs> All right. Well, this way to the kitchen. I know. The kettle is there on the... Huh? We're alone, darling. (laughs) So we are. Well, I'll get the kettle and fill it. Oh, Matt. Why do you treat me like this? I'll do anything you say, only... Then turn on the stove. Here, give me the kettle. There. Now, will you talk to me like a human? Sure. What do we talk about? Matt, I like you. That's nice. Well, what's wrong with me? Well, you're smart. You're very beautiful. Oh? But you've got the heart of a pawnbroker. Well, naturally. I'm a woman. You're a party member. My mind is. But my feelings are pretty bourgeois. You need some discipline, comrade. Badly. You did a good job bringing Vladimir into the party, but you're risking it with it. Nonsense. I can handle Vladimir. Either way, get a new boy to flirt with. I've got a new job to do. I'll be busy. New job? Oh, don't tell me with Evelyn Vickers Hall. Yeah? (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. What's so blame funny? You'll see, my darling, tomorrow. She was a sensation, Sally Northstand. No doubt about that. Blonde hair making a halo over a face that looked as though it deserved it. Only I knew how many lives had been wrecked. How many men Sally had ruined as a communist lure. The next day, I met with Evelyn Vickers Hall backstage of the Regal Theater. The commie organizer turned out to be a dumpy, gray-haired woman with a sweet face and a mouthful of pins. She talked around them as she worked on a costume. You know our objective, Comrade Zvetik? Yes, but not how we gain it. We only have a few party members in the guild. Twenty-eight, to be exact. We will need another hundred or so fellow travelers who will vote the way we say. That all? There's 2,000 in the guild. 2,000 members, yes. How many attend meetings? I don't know. Three or four hundred. That's our strength, comrade. 
These stupid capitalists are not interested in their guild. For the most part, they don't attend meetings and pay less attention to what is done in the meetings. But that's vital to their work. Believe me, comrade, they are sheep. They do what the guild says and never question why, as long as their salary checks are good. In short, all we have to do is control the meetings. That's right. And we will do it. You will see. What's my job? Your first job is the same as my own and Comrade Norstan's. Sally? She's in on this? Vitally. She's in the guild as an actress. We three are the nucleus. Our first move is to become important and active in the guild. Secondly, to become members of the board of directors. Mm-hmm. Well, that won't be easy. Most of the guild hates communists. From here on, we are not communists. You and Sally are socialists. I will be a reformed party member, now preaching a so-called new doctrine. I see. Same thing by a different name. Exactly. We will work only on those members who attend the guild meetings. And we will use three separate methods. Which are? Your method is to work on the intelligent. Use the progress scheme. The world must move forward. World unity. No more prejudice. I know that line. And Comrade Norstan will work on those susceptible to her um, physical attractions. While I... Well, I'm the motherly type, so I've been told. I drag in the stupid and the lonely and the confused. Well, what'll we do? Begin some get-togethers, some coffee clutches? That's the idea. Play down our real beliefs. Play up our concern about the poor and the oppressed. I understand. I'll use Vladimir's place as a cover for some parties. Miss Hall, is that costume ready yet? In a few minutes, Mr. Tyne. Well, shake it up. Sally's waiting for it. Sally? Sally Norstan? Who else, Buster? She's going to be the star of this here drama. Well... Who's that little bundle of vitamins? Nate Tyne, the director. Oh. Stay away from him. He hates the party, and he's the big wheel in the guild. Any chance for Sally to bring him around? None. Tyne's married and likes it that way. Be very careful with him. He's the guild president and is the one man who could block us at the elections. What elections? Two months from now. The new board of directors for the guild will be elected. How many directors? Five, counting the chairman. And three of the new directors are going to be communists. And I was a communist for the FBI and the second act of our story. Matt, you dance with me? Save it for the suckers, Sally. Get to work on that big actor over there. He's ripe for picking. Oh, all right. But he dances like a tank with a broken tread. Henry! All alone. Why don't you ask me to dance? Uh, no, but of course, son. <laughs> what a game. 
Oh, hello, Mrs. Walker. You, what a lovely party. It's just too, too divine. Oh, thank you. I meant to tell you, I heard what you said to Nate Tyne last night. I certainly thought you'd put him in his place. You were brilliant. Oh, I was? Oh, my. Oh, but they really were your words I used. After you explained how backward we were growing up, I woke up to a lot of things. Good. We certainly need some progressives. People like yourself to fight for the real human values. To tell the public about it. Oh, don't you worry. I'm going to spread the word. My plays are going to have meaning from here on. Real social import. Better, girl. And uh, uh, about the elections next week. You can count on me to vote for you and Miss Hall. And Sally. She's one of us, too, you know. Oh, yes. Only, uh, she seems... (laughs) I suppose I'm just being a woman. I'll vote for her, too. Good. And get some of your friends, too, Mrs. Walker. We need people like you on our side. Oh, I will. I will, Matt. (laughs) Oh, my. I called you Matt. I hope you don't mind. No, certainly not. Would you like to dance? Me? I'd love to. It was working, and a nastier operation I've never been in, leading all the innocent and gullible for a red ride straight into trouble. We had nearly a hundred fellow travelers with us now, and Comrade Hall told us how we were going to use them. The divide and conquer method, Comrade. Tomorrow night is the last guild meeting before elections. We need a law passed making it mandatory that there be at least three candidates for each position on the board. One for us and the two other candidates to split the opposing vote. That's right. But we won't have a majority to get the law passed. Yes, we will. Tomorrow night, we're going to filibuster. We're going to stampede our law through. But with only a hundred odd votes, By the time we've talked until four in the morning, so many of the opposing votes will have gotten sleepy and gone home. We'll have a majority. You'll see. There it was. The simple way to control an entire guild with a handful of trained and organized reds. Evelyn Vickers Hall knew her business, and even the stubborn fight of Nate Tyne, the guild president, couldn't stop us. We made sure of that beforehand. Our comrades are down front. They know what to do, Comrade Hall. Good. Let's go on stage. The meeting's ready to start. This new law to have three candidates is essential, fellow workers, if we are to have a truly democratic election. In the words of Thomas Jefferson, that great leader whom we all remember... All right, Miss Hall, all right. Make your point, please. We're waiting to vote. You were elected to the board under the two-candidate system, Mr. Tyne. You know I was, but now... I can understand, then, how you would like to stop the passage of this new law. All I want to do, Miss Hall, is to get some sleep. It's after 11. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tyne seems to dislike freedom of speech. What? Why, that... I put it to you, fellow workers. Are we to have a voice in our guild... Or are we to be forced to do the bidding of a few dictatorial leaders? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I will go on. As I was saying, in the words of that great leader, Thomas Jefferson, whom we all remember as one of the... (laughs) 
Ten speeches and four hours later, the midnight session was losing attendance rapidly. And Comrade Hall wore a grin of triumph. The vote told why. The commie-inspired resolution was passed 120 to 98. It was the big test of our strength. And from there on, the elections looked like a red cinch. All except for Nate Time. The sharp-eyed little director was smelling lots of rats, and he showed it. You did a lot of talking at the meeting, Savetic. You too, Vladimir. What's your story? Story? We only said what we believe. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Only it had a bright pink color, just like a lot of your play, Vladimir. Pink? Me? You. If there's any more of it, you may have to get yourself a new director. Where's Sally? It's time for rehearsal. She's in the wings with one of the actors. I'll get her. Henry, you're really a very sweet boy, but I but can't. But, Sally, please. Oh, I... Matt. I hope you're looking for me. I am, and so is Time. He wants you on the stage. Henry, find something to do, will you? Of course, Sally. You train them well. Claude's. I want you. No dice. You're holding up rehearsal. Fully, I'm the star. They'll wait. How did that happen, anyway? Vladimir talked to Tyne. Tyne auditioned me. He thinks I'm a good actress. I'll buy that. Too bad you're not as good a party member. Party member? Is that all you think about? You make me sick. You'll be sicker after the control commission has your discipline. Don't bet on it, darling. You won't report me. It's your word against mine. And I can lie like the devil. <laughs> Goodbye, dearest. The laughing devilish angel child gave me the idea how to break up Comrade Hall's invasion of the dramatic arts guild. I didn't have much time before the guild elections, so the next night I went to the theater and found Vladimir backstage in Sally's dressing room. Ah, oh, good evening, comrade. Good evening. You're ready for the election? Sure. Uh, who has the room next door? Time, isn't it? The little fascist. Yes, it's his office. I thought so. Does he use it after rehearsal? Of course. Hmm. Say, did you hear Sally in this scene she's doing on the stage? I think she's changed your dialogue. It doesn't sound so good. She's what? Changed my, my words? She wouldn't dare. I'll kill her. <laughs> Vladimir went out like an angry jet, and I went to work in a hurry on the ventilator shaft that connected Sally's dressing room to Tyne's office. In five minutes, I had the grate open at both ends, and in ten more, I had the padded soundboards out of the shaft, leaving it an empty tin tube. I had no time to test it. I could only hope that voices would carry through it. Just as the rehearsal was ending, I caught Evelyn Vickers Hall outside the dressing rooms. Yes? What is it, Matt? I think you'd better speak to Sally. She's getting ideas now that she's starring in this play. She's ready to quit the party. She's what? Why, I'll strangle that pretty cat. She'll be coming to her dressing room here in a moment. Yes, and I'll be inside waiting for her. Matt, where's Miss Hall? My costume needs fixing. She's in your dressing room, Sally. Oh, thanks a lot, darling. Well, you're very welcome. Oh, Mr. Time. Uh, yes? Aren't you going to your office? Uh, not tonight. I'm going straight home. Why? I, well, th that is, I, I want to talk to you in private. Well, can't it wait? No, it's important. Well, uh, oh, all right, but uh, make it fast. Come on. Now, let's have a... Put your finger in my face, you old back. I tell you, Max, the bedding's lied. Why, 
Hustled me out of his office. I waited in the hall. Then, to my surprise, Tyne came out in a few minutes and left without a word to anyone. For the next few days, I waited in tension for Tyne to go into action. Nothing. It was obvious, as the day of elections came around, that Comrade Hall had overrated Tyne's hate for Reds, or underrated his susceptibility to Sally. Either way, the election meeting began with no sign that Tyne knew anything was wrong. And I sat on the platform with the candidates, feeling pretty sick, as I knew my plan had failed. Look, Comrade Svetik, our comrades are all here, in a solid block down front. We'll win without a struggle. Yeah. And when we control the board, the guild will do as the party says, as I say. This hall, look, look what's happening. It was beautiful. Through all the doors of the huge hall they came, by the dozens, by the hundreds. In 15 minutes, the hall was jammed with people. Practically the entire guild had shown up for the elections. It was easy to see who was responsible as the grinning Nate Time stepped up to the rostrum. Quiet, quiet, please. Thank you, fellow members of the Dramatic Arts Guild. As you know, tonight is the night of our elections the elections that some of our members were certain of winning under the guidance of Miss Hall. The very same Evelyn Vickers Hall (laughs) who is at this moment sneaking from the platform, unwilling to face a guild united in its determination to get rid of communism. It was a great night. And a group of Americans had proven again that communism can and will be defeated by a democratic people. For me, I had to report to party headquarters the next morning, and Comrade Norris was somewhat less than friendly. You failed, Comrade Svetik. Failed the party miserably. But Comrade Norris, it was not my fault. It was Comrade Hall and Comrade Norston who were overheard by that fascist time. I am aware of that. That you were part of the operation. Therefore, you must share the blame. Yes, Comrade. Consider yourself lucky. You're getting only a reprimand. Comrade Norston has been turned over to the Control Commission for proper discipline. And Comrade Hall? Her crime is greatest. The punishment will be accordingly. Oh? Yes. It would be good if you kept in mind the penalty for failure. I think of nothing else, Comrade Norris. Believe me. Today. So there it was, another red plan gone wrong. But there were more plans, and behind them all, the deadly threat of their master plan, their historic mission. Until this threat was gone, I knew my work had to go on, and I would continue to be a man who walks alone. 
Dana Andrews will return in just a moment. mentioned in this story were fictional. But the danger is a very real one, so be on your guard. Don't let your organizations fall into red hands. It can happen, and it has happened. But you can keep it from happening again. Next week, we bring you another exciting story based on the true life adventures of Matt Svetik. Join us for it, won't you? 